Hello. Do you need something? <laughs> you have a visitor? Delivery. Special delivery. Is that you? Ma'am. Miss Ma'am. Sweet girl. <laughs> hey, honey. Guys, it's both of you. Oh. Hey. I didn't mean to do this. I it's an invasion. <laughs> invasion of the cat snatchers. Hey. Oh, you guys are so cute. God. That hurts. To look at you with your cute faces. Hey. I'll be done in a little bit, okay? I'll give you brushies. We'll play with your ball, okay? Okay. <laughs> this is priceless. Like Does that sound like a good plan? Okay. I'll see you later. Goodbye. Hey, why don't you try and get a mommy closet? She's not here to stop you. Yeah? Yeah, this is totally going in the cold open. You want to get in mommy's closet? Wouldn't that be so much fun? And we would, we just won't tell her, okay? Okay, I'll see you later. Okay, I think it's closed now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, let's go. <laughs> that's funny. All right. Okay, gosh. We can do this all day. Episode 17, Black Widow Review. You ready, partner? Rock and roll, buckaroo. Hi, this is Mark. And this is Emily. And, and we, we can, can do, do this, this all day. day. A podcast where we review all the movies in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We'll go through each film in the MCU chronologically and discuss our overall impressions. Things we liked, things we didn't like, and everything in between. We hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line. And oh my goodness, it's been a little while, hasn't She's it, She's alive. <laughs> She's alive. I'm alive. We're both alive. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Mark. Mark, for those of you who may have forgotten, <laughs> by the time you're listening to this, everyone is like knee deep in Halloween preparation. This episode is probably going to drop a couple days before Halloween, so y'all are probably getting ready for that as you were listening to this. But yeah, it's been a while. I I'm joined, as always, by Emily, who is back in more ways than one. Back, sans four teeth. <laughs> sans four teeth, who has had probably a <laughs> slightly more exciting end of the summer than I think she was hoping to have. Is that just about sum it up? Yeah, we'll say that sums it up. You come back from vacation and, you know, you find out you have to have four teeth pulled and that kind of sucks. And then she has to move. So that takes up a little bit of time and energy. But in a new studio, yeah, she's almost literally hanging in her new studio. She's got one of those metal shelf rack thingies that she's literally hanging on to. Hopefully not too hard. I don't want that. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> you're, you're making it sound yourself. like this is a really perilous setup. It's just that I want to make sure I don't hit my head because this she's... metal rack is as tall as I am and I'm standing now. Please don't do that. You've had enough physical trauma for the course of the last eight weeks to last you for you know eight years or so but we're both At back least we're both back our long delayed black widow review thank you all for hanging in as long as you have i think we've got a good show in store for you today i guess we have a little bit of mcu news as of the time we're recording this the what if season finale is only about five days away so the final episode of season one will have already aired by the time you're listening to this they have been renewed for a second season tentatively slated to drop on disney plus sometime next year in 2022 that's something exciting to look forward to shang chi and the legend of the ten rings is the hottest movie at the box office granted this is covid times but you know you take what you can get emily and i have both seen it we both give it uh our thumbs up and one of these days we'll get to review it for you it'll be out of the theaters by the time y'all are listening to this but it will be dropping on on Disney Plus, you know, not at the premiere tier level on November the 12th. And then just a couple weeks after that, we get the Hawkeye series dropping on Disney Plus on November 28th. One other bit of news, this is not official, but we've been hearing through my various channels that uh, Ms. Marvel, which we originally thought was going to debut on Disney Plus sometime this year, has been pushed back a little bit. It's starting to look like that'll street sometime in February of 2022. You know what else is big news? That's right. Today is October 1st, isn't uh -huh. it? Uh-huh. And what's October 1st? You know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna sit back. I'm just gonna sit back and, <laughs> oh, <laughs> what's today? Oh, if anything is gonna get Emily in a good mood, and it's not Bucky Barnes, and it's not Clint Barton, it must be our good friend Venom. It's Venom. Yes, I guess uh, Venom. Let there be carnage is in theaters as of today. Is that? Today is October the 1st, so it's in theaters right now, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll still be playing in theaters by the time you'll hear this podcast. Andy Serkis is directing it. 
So it's almost like he's forcing me to not dislike it, which is really, really manipulative, but it just might work. I don't know if I'm going to see it in the theater. I'm kind of still rationing my theater going. I think I'm going to have to save October for the James Bond movie. But you should see it. Everybody should see it. I'm going to go this weekend because I can't go tonight because we're here, which is fine. It's fine. I don't want to go on opening night anyway because that's too much. Just saying. Everybody should go see Venom. I'm just saying. Go see Venom. For make me. Emily happy. Go make Emily happy. Thank you. And now, on to tonight's main event, our review of Black Widow. Now, the movie will be, I think, on Disney Plus in the normal package very, very, very shortly. But there are probably still a lot of people out there who have not seen it yet. So I kind of feel like we especially need to say spoilers, spoilers, spoilers abound in this review. Because we are basically going to retell the entire movie. So if you haven't seen Black Widow yet and you don't want to be spoiled, hit that pause button right now and don't play us until you've seen the movie. It is on Blu-ray and DVD right now, in case you're interested. So you could probably get it off a red box or something like that. But yes, we're reviewing our first new film, which is exciting. This first time we've ever done this. Black Widow opened July 9th, 2021 in theaters and on Disney Plus's premier access platform, which as I'm sure most people know by now, led to Scarlett Johansson's lawsuit against Disney, which as of this recording has finally been settled. We got news of that just yesterday. She and the giant mouse came to some sort of an agreement. Who knows how much money it is, but I am sure sure ScarJo is getting paid. The movie stars, as we mentioned, Scarlett Johansson. It is so good to finally be saying her name first on this list, by the way. Florence Pugh, David Harbour, Rachel Weisz, Ray Winstone, O.T. Fegbenle, Olga Kurylenko, and William Hertz. The film is directed by Kate Shortland. Kate Shortland is a relative newcomer. This is only her fourth feature film, but her 2021 film Lore, which she co-wrote and directed, drew the attention of Scarlett Johansson, who really liked it. Screenplay by Eric Pearson, based on a story by Jack Schaefer and Ned Benson. At the box office, and I admittedly wrote this down a week or two ago, uh, so hopefully it's still reasonably current, uh, on a budget of $200 million, this film had grossed just over $370 million at the box office and earned about $125 million through Disney Plus streaming and other digital downloads for a grand total of roughly $400 million. Given the unusual circumstances of this film's release, most notably a simultaneous release in theaters and on streaming, to say nothing of it happening in the middle of a global pandemic, it's hard to say overall how this picture has done so far. I mean, if you look at just the box office numbers, it's down near the bottom of the MCU box office receipts, just above Incredible Hulk, uh, just below Captain America the First Avenger. Because of COVID, you didn't have record numbers of people flocking to the theater at that time and a lot of folks took a pass on the $30 price tag for Disney Plus Premier Access. So hopefully those numbers will shake out before the end of the year. This movie was the first feature film of Phase 4 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, with WandaVision being its first TV show. The movie was originally scheduled to open on May 1st, 2020, but as you may already know, had its release date bumped three times due to COVID. First it was November 6th, 2020, then May 7th, 2021, and then finally settled on July the 9th, 2021, with simultaneous release in theaters and on Disney Plus's premier access platform. And as we referenced earlier, Scarlett Johansson sued Disney for breach of contract, claiming that she was promised that the film would be released exclusively in theaters. And as such, she was arguing that Disney Plus release cut into box office receipts, which in turn kept her from getting bonuses that would have kicked in when the box office receipts hit certain milestones. And as I said already, just yesterday, it was announced that she and Disney settled over an undisclosed sum. Overall impressions of the film. Let me get this out of the way first. I think the film's biggest flaw is that it's about six years too late. For whatever reasons, legit or otherwise, mostly otherwise, I suspect, the folks at Marvel saw fit to not give Natasha her own solo film until after the character was already dead. I think this movie should have come out right after Civil War. It would have been just as awesome, maybe even better, but it didn't come out six years ago, so I guess it's water under the bridge by now. Given that, I'm glad we got the film at all, because I think <laughs> I think it's a great movie. Uh, it reminds me a lot of a James Bond film. What with the espionage bent and the stunts, the fights, the chases, the beautiful location shoots. And by the way, they had more location shoots on this film than you get with most Marvel movies. On the one hand, it's great to see Scarlett get her own movie finally. But on the other hand, the film also owes its success to a, a fantastic supporting cast. And in some ways, you know, the movie's about Natasha, but in other ways, it's about her and her relationship with her quote-unquote 
family. In fact, I argue it's more about family than anything else, which does beg the question, is it still a Black Widow movie, even if it is about her family? Let's be honest, Yelena and Alexei steal a lot of scenes in this film. I didn't really write anything from my overall impressions, just because I think it'll shake out in the wash when we start talking, because I really did like it. But it's interesting that you would say, is it still a Black Widow movie, even if it's about her family, because you really thought that Civil War was still a Captain America movie, even though it was about the Avengers. Because it doesn't sound like that was a dig. It just sounds like more of, why would they call it Black Widow if it's about a larger story? Same with, why would they call it Captain America Civil War if it's about the Avengers? I still thought it had a close enough focus on Cap that it warranted having that title. I'm not saying that Black Widow doesn't deserve to have the title Black Widow. I'm not making any definitive calls or anything. But it just kind of, it just crossed my mind. It just, there are times that movie, you have so much of, you know, Yelena and Alexei and Melina. There's a lot of scene stealing in this movie, I think. Especially later as the movie moves on, it just kind of felt at times like the the focus was less on Natasha and more on these other, you know, two or three people. I just got that feeling more in this movie than I did in Civil War. That's fair. I mean, I just feel like we saw a lot of Tony in Civil War. Yeah, well... <laughs> Quite a be, lot of be, Tony. <laughs> be, because Robert Downey Jr. If you secure the services of Robert Downey Jr. for your movie, you're probably going to want to use him. I guess I would also like to have seen more of the Red Room in terms of the specific training that the Widows go through. You know, we got glimpses of that between this film and, and Age of Ultron, but I, I was really kind of hoping to see more of that. And you don't really get a lot about the training or what they go through or what life is really like when you're learning to be uh, a global assassin. This is the first movie that we've gotten to rank on this list in quite some time. I currently have it slotted at number 11 out of 25. I had to update that with now that Shang-Chi is out. So in my, in my rankings, it's number 11 out of 25, just above Captain Marvel and just below Thor. So I don't know. Did you want to jump in with your ranking? I put it at number 7. Or well, like 7, 8. 8 or 9 is Captain America, the first Avenger. And so I would say Black Widow is 7 or 8. Or maybe 6 and 7. Okay, wow. Not a firm number, but in that sort of general top 10. I've got it at 11, so I probably could just as easily have had it at 10 if I wanted to, but I guess it kind of depends on the mood I'm in or whatnot. The film opens somewhere in Ohio in 1995. A young teenage girl, her little sister, and their mom are preparing the dinner table when their dad comes home, pulls their mom aside, and indicates that they have, quote, like an hour maybe, before something apparently ominous is going to happen. The dad addresses his girls and tells them that today is the day that they leave on some undisclosed adventure that he has told them they would one day have. The little girl is excited. Big girl, as her mom refers to her, not so much. In fact, while the little girl and the dad leave to get ready, mom quietly whispers, I'm sorry, to big girl. They begin packing essentials into their SUV, including several weapons and some sort of computer diskette, and depart in haste. When the little girl asks where they are going, mom simply replies, home. Aw, little baby blue-haired Natasha and Yelena. <laughs> this is going to be a super long review for me, I can already tell. You remember in the Top 5 Characters episode, I was talking about how old older siblings, specifically older sisters, have to grow up pretty fast and know a lot about family affairs well before they should because it's basically required. You can see it in little Natasha's face when she and her mom look at each other after Alexi's announcement that they have to go. Yelena's just happy that they're going on an adventure that was promised, but Natasha clearly knows better and knows that this surely isn't an adventure, and that hardy hurts to see because she's clearly very young. Soon they're off, driving through the suburbs, listening to Don McLean's American Pie, the little girl's favorite song, nervously avoiding some sort of police checkpoint near the edge of town. This was the second time that I watched the movie for the review, and I realized something about Yelena with this scene. Her favorite song is American Pie and her obsession later with finding cool ways to die. Yeah, I hadn't... Uh, when isn't American Pie kind of, you know? Yeah, it's a fatalistic song. It's about the day the music died, you know, the day that Buddy Holly, the big bopper, and Richie Valens plane crashed in Iowa in 1959, so it's just a very fatalistic song, so I can kind of see how that would get into her She already knew as a kid, yeah. I guess so. They eventually find themselves out in the middle of nowhere and stop at what appears to be a farm. Inside one structure is a single-engine plane that they quickly prepare for takeoff. Dad conspicuously moves a very large piece of farm equipment out of the way single-handedly, like it was nothing. Moments later, a fleet of vehicles bearing shield logos arrives to apprehend them. Mom, with the kids on board, starts the engine and begins to taxi away from the structure while Dad fights off the incoming shield vehicles with a rifle. He runs after the plane, in a decidedly superhuman-looking manner, and jumps onto the wing, still firing at their pursuers. In the course of the firefight, Mom is shot, and Big Girl is forced to climb into the cockpit and help get the plane off the ground, which, with great difficulty, she does, and with Dad hanging onto the wing for dear life. Hours later, they land in Cuba. Mom, 
identified as Melina, is hauled onto a stretcher and taken away. Before she's taken away, Big Girl speaks to her in Russian. Melina replies in English, Don't let them take your heart. A white limo approaches and some guy in shades and a tracksuit emerges. Dad identifies him as General Drakov. Drakov responds, The Red Guardian returns, and they embrace. Dad gives Drakov the disc. When the little girl runs after Dad, a soldier grabs her. Big Girl assaults the soldier and takes his gun brandishing it and warning everyone to stay away from her sister, now identified as Yelena, both in English and in Russian. Dad talks Big Girl into giving him the gun. She tells them she wants to go back to Ohio, and that they can't do whatever it is they're going to do to them to Yelena. She's only six. You were younger, responds Dad. He then tries to reassure the girls that they will be okay, and that they will look out for each other. Drakov nods to two soldiers, who then render the girls unconscious with hypodermic needles before carrying them off. That one has fire in her, comments Drakov. What was her name again? Dad replies, Natasha. I really like this scene with Natasha defending Yelena. Again... You gotta do what you gotta do to protect your sister, and she knows that, despite the obviously odd circumstances. The whole opening teaser, I just thought it was kind of riveting, because it's like I sort of kind of had an idea what was going to be happening at the beginning, just from what little bit I'd heard, but I ultimately didn't know, and I still felt very kind of excited and you know intrigued all the way through that set piece at the beginning. I think the same as with Winter Soldier. There was a point in Winter Soldier where I realized we were in for a serious movie. You know, like a serious like emotionally and sort of mentally. And so I think this, you know, a little tiny child with a gun defending her sister. I was like, oh, we're in for a serious moment, aren't we? Mm -hmm. And so we get what I think is our first full opening title sequence with credits in it and all since way back in Incredible Hulk. Talk about knowing that you're in for a serious movie. I think it's a terrifying and rather chilling montage of images, starting with Natasha and Yelena being rounded up violently with several other girls with Drakov looking on. He pulls Natasha off to the side and he tells her, you know, the red room is your home. And then we see images of Natasha training and being indoctrinated, along with her and Yelena posing for those staged photos of them opening a presence at Christmas. They kind of follow through with the girls getting older and all these images of violence and unrest, presumably sown by Black Widows. It's a, you know, it's a powerful, if disturbing, way to open the film. And that haunting cover of smells like teen spirit it was just ugh. the title sequence is kind of when i kind of realized wow there's going to be some darkness in this movie 21 years later we see natasha romanov on the run after the events of captain america civil war she's being pursued by secretary of state thaddeus ross for violating the sokovia accords and assaulting t'challa the king of wakanda for a second i was like but she didn't assault t'challa and then i remembered the airport in germany a superhero battle technically counts as assault i think if you fire widow stings at someone it probably counts as assault just sort of no and matter what the instance was she still fired a projectile at the leader of a sovereign nation who just happens to be a super Superhero. Yeah, I just sort uh, of forgot about that part. <laughs> so just a, yeah, just a tiny little tiny little detail. We cut to Morocco where a group of black widows is targeting a woman carrying a package. The team leader of the group engages the target and kills her. But before she dies, the target takes a canister from the package and uses it to spray the black widow with a red dust that neutralizes the mind-controlling agent that has her brainwashed. The widow who is identified shortly thereafter as Yelena Belova, comes to her senses and realizes she's just murdered a former widow who tells Yelena, with her dying breath, to use the other canisters in the package to free the others. Yelena uses her combat knife to cut a tracker out of her thigh and flees with the package before the other widows can converge on her position. The other widows inform Drakov that Yelena has deserted and that they need to enact the Taskmaster Protocol. We then quickly cut to an ominous-looking masked hooded figure, Taskmaster, who is watching video of Clint Barton's and T'Challa's fight at the Leipzig airport from Civil War. A black widow plugs a data drive into the back of Taskmaster's helmet. I'll have more to say about Taskmaster later. Let it be said now, though, that the character in this film is nothing like Taskmaster in the comics. Anyway, watching Yelena dispatch that ex-widow reminds me why I think this just might be the most violent of the MCU movies so far. She stabs her, twists the knife, and then rips it outward. And I'm, I'm watching this, I'm thinking, damn, this is hardcore. This is a serious Marvel movie. This is a serious kind of espionage uh, action thriller. Natasha has fled to a safe house in Norway, a double-wide trailer in the middle of nowhere. It has been supplied and outfitted by Rick Mason. He's also brought Natasha some mail that was left for her 
including, unbeknownst to her, the vials given to Yelena, at the old Budapest safe house, which, according to Mason, currently has another occupant at the moment. Natasha stashes the mail in the trunk of her car. The scene with Natasha and Mason in the safe house is really quick and likely forgettable by most, but as I was going back and watching it for the third time, I noticed how it very stealthily gives the audience a very quick glimpse into Natasha's state of mind at that moment. Mason asks her if she's alright because he heard the Avengers broke. She says, yes, she's all right, and that she has friends, to which Mason responds, quote, people with friends don't call me. I also couldn't help but notice the irony of Natasha's declaration that, quote, I'm actually better on my own. On the one hand, we know that's absolutely false. We know how much the Avengers provided her with a purpose based on both her appearances before and after the events of this film. But on the other hand, the fact that we're finally seeing her in her own solo film is amazing. And in that context, the statement holds a strange amount of truth. You look at the number of scenes in this movie where Natasha is the only one on screen. Uh, I think that may be a first in the MCU. I really like the idea that Natasha has people completely outside of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Red Room. Like, I can bet you that probably not even Clint knows about Rick Mason. I mean, even we didn't know about Rick Mason. There's something kind of intriguing about that. I feel like I want to know more about this guy. Yeah, obviously Rick Mason is the one in charge of the safe house in Budapest that she and, well, we'll get to it, but that she and Clint used. But I can bet you that Clint did not see Rick Mason. One night, Natasha is at home Netflixing and chilling when her power goes out. She's run out of fuel for her generator, so she heads into town to get some. She's crossing a bridge into town when she's attacked by Taskmaster, who is wielding a small vibranium shield, much like the one used by you-know-who. The two engage each other in a fight, and Taskmaster is copying Natasha's fighting style verbatim. Taskmaster is after the vials and spots them in the wreckage of Natasha's car. Natasha realizes this and runs to the box containing them when she's greeted with another onslaught by Taskmaster. Taskmaster gets the upper hand and knocks Natasha off the bridge into the river below. Taskmaster goes to retrieve the box, only to discover that the vials are missing. Natasha survives the fall into the water and makes it ashore downstream, along with the vials, which, she discovers, contain a picture of her and her sister, Yelena, from when they were children. It dawns on Natasha that the vials were sent to her from Yelena in Budapest. First off, this is a cool fight, but let me ask you, how often do we see Natasha Romanoff lose a fight? I mean, she gets her clock cleaned here. I think it says something about the stakes of this movie when Natasha is the one getting her ass handed to her for a change. I mean, technically, she is fighting herself. So did Natasha really get her clock cleaned? It's like a philosophy question. If Natasha Romanoff fights Natasha Romanoff, did she really lose the fight? (laughs) It's it's 10 o'clock on a Friday night. I don't know how, how easily I can wrap my head around that one. We'll put that one to the listeners. Natasha arrives in Budapest by train and goes to the safe house. Almost immediately upon entering, she is confronted by Yelena, who, at this point, trusts Natasha about as little as Natasha trusts her. They fight, rather violently, I might add. They're about to kill each other when they mutually agree to yield. This is a great fight, strictly from a choreography standpoint, but man, it's a brutal one. Family makes any conflict intense, but this is insane, this fight. I mean, we've got breaking dishes, breaking cabinets, and people are lifting people up and yelling a lot. They say you only hurt the ones you love, and I guess we see that on full display right here in this fight. I think the only person I've ever actually physically fought is my sister, so that tracks. Yelena explains to her that the vials contain a synthetic gas that counteracts the chemical subjugation used by Drakov on all of the Red Room recruits. She sent it to Natasha, hoping that one one of her Avenger friends, who knows more about that sort of thing, could tell them more about it. Natasha replies that the Avengers aren't exactly on speaking terms right now. She also has a hard time believing that the Red Room and Drakov still exist, seeing how she thought she had killed him a long time ago. As part of her final defection to S.H.I.E.L.D., she and Clinton Barton blew up the five-story building that Drakov was in, duked it out with Hungarian special forces, and hid out in Budapest for ten days before successfully escaping. Yelena adds, you're forgetting Drakov's daughter. And so now we finally know more less what happened in Budapest, or Budapest, as Natasha insists on calling it, as referenced by Clint and Natasha in Avengers. The apartment is suddenly rocked by an explosion as a kill team of widows infiltrates the safe house through the ceiling. With the help of some pre-existing booby traps, Natasha and Yelena are able to get out of the apartment, but the place is also surrounded by snipers, so getting away from the apartment is another matter altogether. They manage to do so, but in the process, they witness one of the widows get severely injured. Natasha tries to save her, but Drakov makes her kill herself with her widow stinger, forcing Natasha to accept 
that what Yelena told her is true, that Drakov and the Red Room are both alive and well. I know, unfortunately, that we're lucky enough to even get this movie in terms of Natasha's backstory, but I feel like it adds so many more questions, especially when it comes to the Red Room and what little we know of Bucky's time with Hydra. In Civil War, Natasha says, you could at least remember me, to Bucky while he's fighting her under the control of the Winter Soldier programming. And now the Red Room isn't just using brainwashing, but actual mind control, chemical subjugation, whatever it is. So what happened there? I mean, I don't read the comics, so maybe there's something in the comics that I'm missing, but was the Red Room related to Hydra? Was Bucky farmed out to the Red Room? Was Natasha farmed out to Hydra? Aside from being part of S.H.I.E.L.D.? You know, I have questions, and I don't feel like the movies really answer that well enough for a person who doesn't know the comics. We get some answers, but I don't think they're very good ones. Well, I think this ties in a lot to what I was referring to earlier when I feel like I wanted to learn more about the Red Room and how it operates under normal circumstances and how widows are trained. I must confess, I actually have not read a lot of kind of classic Black Widow in the comics, so I don't really know how the Red Room is presented there. Her origin story is actually very different in the comics. She first debuted like in the late 60s or the early 70s. Well, yeah, and I know in the movie she was born in the 80s, but in the comics, isn't she also, you know, like Bucky kind of? Like 100 years old? (laughs) It's the whole thing with comics move the age bar along um, so that everyone is perpetually the same age. In the comics, she starts out as a spy along with her husband, who is the Red Guardian. And then like he gets killed. And that's like why she gets the name the Black Widow. And then she goes on and becomes a super spy. And I don't remember if it was like a brainwashing kind of thing or or, or what. I don't know enough enough about the history of the character. I have a bit of a blind spot there. Within the context of the MCU, I agree with you. There are a lot of gaps and maybe in in Hawkeye or some future thing with Yelena, we'll get some answers. I hope so. The two of them flee through the streets of Budapest, first on a motorcycle, then in a stolen car, pursued by widows on motorcycles and Taskmaster in an armored personnel carrier. After their car is blown up by Taskmaster, they manage to make it to an old hiding spot of Natasha's and Clint's in a subway station, where they are able to shake Taskmaster. Yelena says Taskmaster is capable of mimicking any move you make. She then presses Natasha on details regarding Drakov's daughter. Natasha explains that she was collateral damage when she blew up the building with Drakov. I gotta say it again, the stunt work in this movie is incredible. It's like watching a James Bond movie. It's one of the reasons I, I'm always going to be saying I like this movie a lot. It, the action is just top notch. My favorite is when they slide down the center of the escalator. I've always wanted to do something like that. How how convenient that this just happens to be one of the escalators that doesn't have those little stud thingies along the way that they're put there to keep people from doing just that. I like it when they're sliding on the roof. There's something about them sliding down that stucco roof that I think is really, really cool. That rooftop chase is, uh, I just thought was really neat. Natasha and Yelena successfully get out of the city and into the countryside. Yelena tells Natasha that she doesn't know where the Red Room currently is because it keeps moving. Each widow is sedated before each entry and exit for added security. She also says that Drakov never came after Natasha for fear of stoking the ire of the Avengers. Natasha tells Yelena that she assumed she, Yelena, had gotten away and was living a normal life. When Yelena asks Natasha why she never came to look for her, Natasha replies that she didn't think Yelena wanted to see her. Yelena counters that she thinks it's because Natasha didn't want her little sister to get in the way of her playing with the cool kids. Natasha says that they were never really sisters. Yelena counters that the Avengers were never really Natasha's family. And then we get Yelena's now infamous mocking of Natasha's fighting pose. It does look like you think that everyone's looking at you, like, all the time. Natasha says that every day spent posing, she was trying to make herself something other than a trained killer. Yelena says that they are both still trained killers, only... Quote, I'm not the one on the cover of a magazine. I'm not the killer that little girls call their hero. Ouch. Later, Yelena tells Natasha that she, Yelena, and the recent crop of widows are being chemically controlled not psychologically controlled as Natasha and the older widows were. That's why the vials with the red counter agent are so important. Otherwise, Drakov just keeps taking young girls, converting most into widows, and killing the rest. Natasha invites Yelena to join her in finding the red room, setting the widows free, and killing Drakov. Yelena accepts. This scene is obviously very talk-heavy, but I thought it warranted being included in the plot synopsis because it's such an important scene. Yelena is airing out some, some pretty hard truths here. Sure, she may be jealous at the fact that Natasha had a good number of things go her way during her break from Drakov and the Red Room that she didn't have, but that doesn't mean Yelena is wrong. Natasha's had the protection, uh, the fellowship, and yes, even the celebrity of the Avengers for the last several years, while Yelena has had 
had to fend for herself this entire time. You know, I'd probably be kind of pissed too. Honestly, in the long run, that verbal fight probably hurt more than the physical fight that they just had. I joke about the one physical fight that I've ever had with my sister, but we've had a couple of verbal fights that still sting, and it's been many years. That's how words cut deeper than knives, I think, sometimes. And then on top of this, we get the vest scene. I, I just love that scene. I just think it's so adorable how excited Yelena is about buying her first piece of clothing of her own accord, now that she has control of her own life. And as we discussed in our Top 5 MCU Characters episode last time, it's obvious to me that Yelena is especially happy that Natasha, her big sister, agrees with her how cool the vest is. The vest is cool. It is cool. So cool. So many pockets pockets rule the day just like people don't understand uh sister being sisters people don't understand how cool it is to have something that has pockets that are functional when you're a girl natasha contacts mason and tells him they need a jet instead he brings her an ancient russian helicopter that has clearly seen better days she and yelena fly off to spring their father alexei shostakov aka red guardian a soviet era super soldier from a gulag in the snowy middle of nowhere cut to alexei who's in prison telling his fellow inmates about confrontations with captain america that never happened at mail call he receives a package containing a red guardian action figure its head pops off revealing a concealed earpiece through which Natasha gives him instructions for getting out of the prison and into the open where they can pick him up. Naturally, things don't go as planned, and Natasha has to fast rope out of the chopper to help him escape. Yelena and the chopper start taking ground fire, so she uses an RPG to take out a 50 caliber gun tower. Unfortunately, the prison is in a valley surrounded by mountains, and the ensuing explosion triggers an avalanche, but Yelena is able to retrieve Natasha and Alexei before the prison is engulfed. Yeah, this scene is a little over the top. You know, the helicopter gets hammered with 50 caliber gunfire and Yelena <laughs> doesn't get a scratch. And Natasha is able to, like, pick up and hold on to Red Guardian, who's probably, you know, twice her weight. I guess I'm just far too willing to suspend my disbelief because for some reason, none of that bothers me very much. Because comics, perhaps? I don't know. After a testy bit of family drama on the helicopter, Alexei tells Natasha and Yelena that he doesn't know where the Red Room currently is. He used to be bosom buddies with Drakov, but then Drakov went and put him behind bars for no apparent reason. He does, however, reveal that the girl's mother, Melina Vostokov, is still alive and works for the Red Room remotely from outside of St. Petersburg. This is one of the examples that I kind of mentioned in the top five characters of siblings more generally sort of teaming up against their parents. Like when Alexi makes a joke, doesn't he make a joke about like, oh, is it your time of the month or something? Yeah. And the two of them, but well, mostly Yelena, but the two of them sort of do this back and forth with like, oh yeah, that doesn't happen. You want to know why? And they like egg it on and Alexi's like, stop, <laughs> oh, start... stop, stop, stop. <laughs> they just reach in and pull, pull it out. out. <laughs> I was going to talk about fallopian tubes. Yeah, you don't want to hear about that? But I always really liked that scene just because I think it's so funny because, you know, sometimes kids, even as adults, you team up against your parents. I feel like it was even hard for them to stop because just Alexi's very existence sort of eggs them on to push it further and push it further. He just says the stupidest things. He just cannot keep his mouth shut. The more he opens it, the more he's just kind of painting a target on his back. He's just asking for it every single time he says something. I also like when he talks about Melina and Yelena's like, Mom Melina? Mom Melina? We thought she was dead. Yeah, that one, what? <laughs> like the whenever you find out something new about family drama, like some new mm -hmm. family secret, and you're like, wait, but I thought it was this. And your parents are like, no, it's this. Despite all of the James Bond action thrillers stuff in this movie. I feel like this movie is very relatable from a family perspective. Well, I think I think it's very relatable from a family perspective. That's one of the things that makes it such a good movie. The scene on the helicopter is important because it's the first time we see Alexei articulate his thoughts, feelings, and opinions about this whole situation. We see a bit of it when he's telling all those tall tales in prison. Clearly, he values being Red Guardian above all else. He says, I could have been more famous than Captain America. Instead, Drakov, you know, quote-unquote, buries me in Ohio on that stupid mission. Three years years tedious boring me to tears and of course yelena looks back at him horrified because he just he just took a massive bleep all over the happiest part of her childhood that said i do feel like alexi has a bit of a point if the point was for them to be as discreet as possible in ohio and to blend in why was it so necessary to have him there as as he refers to it muscle even more so why do they need a super soldier just kind of seems like overkill 
After Lexi insists that they will have enough fuel to make St. Petersburg, the helicopter crashes near Molina's compound after running out of fuel, and the family is reunited. One of my favorite scenes in this movie is all of the women sitting in the living room slash kitchen, and Alexi's in the bathroom trying to put on his Red Guardian uniform again, and they're all just quietly staring at anywhere but each other. I know it's meant to be more maybe a tent situation. I think they might have been going for tent, but it was funny to me. Because they don't want to have to talk to each other. Because then they would have to address some of the issues, you know, that they don't want to mm-hmm. talk about, obviously. So instead, they're just, you know, oh, I'm going to look over here, and I'm going to look over there, and I'm going to look up here. Like, anywhere but where I have to look. It's funny you mentioned this, because here we go, the differences between you and me and the stuff that we think about. But when I see that scene, I interpret their sort of discomfort very differently. They're sitting there, and, you know, Alexei, he has gone into the bathroom. They don't know what he's doing in there, but they can hear all of these very uncomfortable, unsettling, grunting and groaning noises. And all I can say is if dude goes into the bathroom and starts making all those sorts of noises, I'm going to be thinking all sorts of weird stuff, wondering what the hell is going on in there. When it comes down to it, I have the mind of a nine-year-old and potty humor is all I think about. Melina reveals that during their time in Ohio, they had infiltrated a research facility that was a front for S.H.I.E.L.D., which back then, of course, was Hydra. S.H.I.E.L.D. scientists who, in addition to the Winter Soldier project, managed to create the first and only cellular blueprint of the basal ganglia, part of the human brain associated with voluntary motor function, procedural learning, cognition, etc. The key to unlocking free will. That is the basis of the chemical subjugation that Drakov uses on his widows. And again... More questions. I have them. How did Alexi get to be a super soldier? Was there more serum than just what was in the car with Howard that went to the extra winter soldiers? Why would Hydra give the serum to Red Room or let it be stolen? Theoretically, only to give it to one dude who then went to Ohio of all places with it in his blood. And also... Why didn't Natasha ever say anything about the fact that she knew a super soldier before Steve? You know, again, maybe I'm missing something because of the comics, but I always pictured Red Room and Hydra, and even Hydra and S.H.I.E.L.D. to some extent, as separate, even though Hydra kind of has some Russian influences and ties. So I'm wondering now how much of the Red Room is tangled up in S.H.I.E.L.D. and therefore tangled up in Hydra. I think we need like a Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Hydra miniseries or something like that to answer some of these questions. The more you ask those questions, the more I'm starting to agree with you and thinking, wow, that's a good point. What is going on here. I don't think it's this movie's fault, of course. I just think it's kind of like the problem with X-Men, is that the more movies you make and the more you try and go into the lore, the more gaps there are. The more you're retconning stuff. Oh, how come Natasha didn't mention that she knew another super soldier before she met Steve Rogers? It's like, well, because they didn't know they were going to be making this movie. Obviously, the reveal Melina has slash had been working on the chemical subjugation stuff all this time is the main point of the scene. But the establishment of the family dynamic after all these years, especially after everything that's happened, is clearly the most intriguing part of the scene for me. Clearly, Natasha has a clinical view of everything, and she seems to have an easy time accepting that this group was never really a family. Same with Melina, although old habits die hard, as her comments about Natasha slouching would seem to demonstrate. And then, of course, Alexi only cares about getting back to being Red Guardian, although even he at times likes to lapse into, you know, parental tropes, claiming he's proud of his girls. But as we talk about in our top five MCU characters show, Yelena gets really upset with all this talk of them not really being a family, because she was very young, and it was very real to her. Yelena stalks off to another room to be alone. Alexi follows her and sits with her. Melina tells Natasha that, contrary to what she thinks, she was not abandoned by her biological mother. Natasha was essentially drafted based on her genetic potential. Drakov struck a deal with Natasha's family to hand her over, but Melina says that Natasha's mom never stopped looking for her, to the point where Drakov finally had her executed. Even though she wasn't her biological mother, Natasha tells Melina that her advice, pain makes us stronger, helped to keep her alive. Melina then confesses that she had already informed the Red Room of Natasha's, Yelena's, and Alexei's arrival. Back in the other room, Alexei is failing miserably at trying to connect with Yelena, until he starts to sing American Pie, and she smiles. But within moments, Drakov's forces descend upon them. Alexei is neutralized by a zillion trank darts. Yelena makes her way through the house and discovers the inert form of Natasha lying on the floor. Melina, now in a widow uniform, enters the room and widow stings Yelena. I know I'm just a broken record by this point, but the relationship between Melina and Natasha, and by extension Yelena, is done so, so well. The complicated relationships between moms and daughters, eldest daughters and moms, younger sisters and older sisters, all of that. It's so intense, even if you live 
a good, happy, easy life. So I can't even imagine how difficult it is for Natasha to try and keep herself together while also acknowledging that she has no control over what happened to her or her family. But she still has to carry that burden of being Mm -hmm. nominally the oldest daughter. I'm glad you brought that up because it's clearly a theme running through this movie and I can't speak to that (laughs) as as I'm no one's daughter. So I'm glad you mentioned that. It is an interesting dynamic and there's always this kind of Pavlovian response to your parent. The whole, like the slouching thing you know Natasha kind of takes it really slouch who's slouching I'm not slouching she keeps trying to say okay this is what's going to happen and then every time she tries to launch to it something you know Natasha stop slouching I'm not slouching and they go on the thing okay this is what's going to happen and then someone says something else very you know you what did you, you tell them about Santa Claus and all that sort of thing it's like herding cats. Yeah, it's like herding cats, exactly. Welcome to like everybody's family ever. It's like herding <laughs> it's, cats. Yeah, that's why this movie is so relatable. It's like we've all been there. Soon they are all on board Quinjet-like craft that are headed for the Red Room, a fortress floating above the Earth. We see Melina make her way through the Red Room to Drakov's office. The two of them begin to talk, but before long, Drakov unmasks Melina and reveals that it is actually Natasha, wearing one of the shield face cloak thingies, like she wore in Captain America the Winter Soldier, which which means that the Natasha in a holding cell next to Alexei is actually Melina in disguise. She easily opens their cells and then contacts Yelena, who is about to be lobotomized. A much less cool way to die. <laughs> Indeed. By way of a radio earpiece that she smuggled onto Yelena before they were captured. She lets Yelena know that she has a two-inch blade on her, which she uses to kill the doctors and escape. The audience learns through a flashback that immediately after Melina informed the Red Room back on the farm, she and Natasha switched outfits and donned the masks. Melina told Natasha to arrange for the three of them to be held on level zero, and that she would activate the landing protocol. Natasha would activate her tracking so that Ross and his people would come instantly and arrest Drakov, and she arranged for Yelena to have one of the comms pieces. Melina now tells Yelena that she needs to get to the Widow Antidote in cold storage and expose the Widows to it to free them. Drakov reveals to Natasha that Taskmaster is actually his daughter, Antonia, very much alive. She suffered so much damage during Natasha's assassination attempt back in the day that Drakov had to put a chip in the back of her neck. This is how she's able to mimic opponents' moves with such machine-like precision. I'm pretty bad at catching plot twists in movies. You know, I always pick the wrong killer in procedural dramas. I always get book endings wrong. So I'll just say... The twist of Natasha and Melina working together and switching themselves before they attacked was a total shocker to me. I really liked it and I thought it worked well and sort of showed that even though Natasha's mad at her family, she's well aware that she needs to work with them if she wants to actually do what she set out to complete in Budapest. Also, I know you have opinions about Taskmaster and you're going to cover those, but the horror in Natasha's face when she sees Antonia, you know, what do you do with yourself after that? When you thought you had killed a little kid and that was bad enough to haunt you for years and years, but now you find out that she's been alive and suffering all this time, it's somehow way worse. In some ways, it it is worse because this girl has clearly been through the ringer and then some. She probably feels horrible. In this situation, death probably would have been kinder. Jumping forward, you know, the last thing you hear Antonia say at the very end, you know, is, is he gone? Because he was kind of a terror. And I'm sure I'll have more to say on this later, but I'll give you a little foretaste now. I'm sure the writers thought that this was a clever way to introduce Taskmaster into the MCU with a more logical explanation of his, her abilities, rather than them simply being a superpower, as is, I think, the case in the comics. And, you know, I suppose it is kind of clever, but I guess I just I just really miss Taskmaster from the comic. He's kind of like a Deadpool, but he's not quite as much of a goofball. You know, funny in a smart-alecky, quippy kind of way, but not too much. This Taskmaster understandably has almost no personality at all and is quite cold but I, I understand why they did it Drakov sends Antonia away which would seem to present Natasha with an ideal opportunity to kill him even with her gun drawn and pointed at his head Natasha cannot seem to pull the trigger apparently all widows including Natasha, are conditioned such that when they smell his pheromones, they are unable to commit violence against him. He also gets wise to the plan and locks out the Red Room's landing sequence. He shows Natasha the database of widows and points out that there are widows literally all over the planet and that he controls the world's power brokers through them. He says that before, these girls were trash and that he gave them purpose. He says they were the one resource the world has too much of. And so we finally get Drakov in a nutshell. When it comes down to it, he's a weak, 
pathetic, misogynistic little bastard. Honestly, I don't think there's a way for the plot synopsis to capture just how icky he is. Like, just how disgusting and bleh. Obviously, a lot of people do think that way. Lots of people think that there are too many little girls and Mm -hmm. that they're all useless. But it's just so gross to see it perfectly encapsulated in Mm -hmm. this one dude with too much power. It's also kind of crazy that everyone who was involved in taking down Hydra probably thinks that they did their job and did it well, but here we are in a floating sky fortress with someone else pulling the strings. (laughs) It's never over until it's over, is it? It's like in Star Wars. It's like, oh, we blew up the Death Star. Yay. Oh, look, there's another one. Yay. Oh, and then like 70 years later, there's another Death Star that's like the size of an entire planet. The vicious cycle of being a supervillain and the heroes trying to take them down. I mean, I guess if Hydra and Red Room are connected, cut off one head, three more will take its place or whatever the phrase is. Three more will take its place, yep. Antonia goes down to the holding cells where Melina and Alexei are and engages Alexei in hand-to-hand combat. This buys Melina time to try something else to bring down the Red Room. With Drakov having revealed the database and how to access it, the audience gets another flashback in which it's revealed that Melina told Natasha about the pheromonal lock and that the only way to bypass it is for a widow to sever the olfactory nerve above her nose. Back in the present, Natasha slams her forehead against Drakov's desk, severing the nerve and killing his pheromonal lock. Melina destroys destroys one of the Red Room's engines, sending it into a controlled crash. She then returns to the cell block and helps Alexei lock Antonia in one of the holding cells. Natasha is about to finish off Drakov when all of the remaining widows converge on his office. While he flees, they engage Natasha in brutal hand-to-hand combat. Unsurprisingly, Natasha is able to fight off quite a few of them, but is eventually overwhelmed and about to die when Yelena drops the antidote into the room from above and frees all of the widows from the chemical subjugation. Natasha tells them all to get as far away as they can and that they can all now make their own choices. Regardless of what we see Natasha do later on in the MCU, I think this is really the fight of her life. We talk about getting the red out of her ledger. This is the most direct way we have ever seen her address that. Stopping Drakov from turning more innocent girls into murderers and liberating the ones who've already been turned. It's a very visceral, brutal fight, like most of the fights Natasha has in this film. But most importantly, these fights are personal. And that's why I think they're so unique in the history of Natasha's character in the MCU. This fight is especially brutal when you remember that Yelena said that the widows are fully present. I bet a bunch of those girls either know Natasha or at least know of her through Yelena or other stories that get passed around, so they're fully aware that she's living the life that they can only dream of. And even with that, like, they probably don't want to hurt her, but you can't stop it. I mean, the girl that killed herself with her widow stinger, she didn't want to do that. Before he flees, Natasha is able to steal Drakov's control ring. She now uses it to transfer the entire Widow database to a disk. As the facility destroys itself around her, Natasha has no choice but to jump out of one of the windows. She drops several stories before catching herself on a railing and hauling herself back into the Red Room. Melina and Alexei are able to escape in a jet, but it is damaged in flight. Natasha ends up in the cell block where, despite the high probability that she will kill her once she does, Natasha frees Antonia. The cell block level blows up almost immediately thereafter. Natasha is able to drop to a lower level of the facility and starts running. Drakov boards a jet and attempts to flee, but Yelena jumps on top of the jet and destroys one of its engines, blowing it up and killing Drakov. The explosion throws Yelena clear of the Red Room and she begins to fall. Natasha, who has witnessed this whole thing, grabs a parachute and jumps after Yelena. Weaving in and out of tons of falling debris, Natasha catches up to Yelena, puts the chute on her, and activates it. Their descent begins to slow when Natasha notices Antonia falling after them. She lets go of Yelena, allowing her to float down safely while she grapples with Antonia in midair. Antonia activates a parachute of her own, and she and Natasha are able to land somewhat safely. They continue their fight on the ground until Natasha notices one last vial of antidote on the ground and uses it to free Antonia. The freefall stuff looks really cool, if incredibly unrealistic, but it's cool. This is a Marvel movie, and as I've said before, I think suspension of disbelief is almost a prerequisite in order to watch these films. But here's another thing. Where did that vial come from? It just happened to land there, or was Natasha carrying it with her? Yeah, I think one of the things that I don't like about this movie is that some of the fighting is 
super unrealistic. And I know tons of other MCU fights are unrealistic too, of course, but usually it's with someone who's a super soldier or an alien or a god. Natasha is just a normal, soft and fleshy human. <laughs> they even acknowledge that at the beginning when Yelena sees her bruises from all the fighting. I mean, it does look super cool, but it also kind of feels like cheating. Yeah, I still can't figure out how she held on to Alexei when she rescues him from the prison. There was something about that that didn't compute, but... I mean, it would be fine if she was a super soldier, if that's something that they had implied, but they haven't implied that. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> I mean, the general understanding is that the widows are just trained killers. Mm -hmm. So... Because comics. <laughs> Natasha looks around as the wreckage of the Red Room is strewn all around her. She finds Yelena, who landed a little hard, but is in one piece. She asks Yelena, her little sister, for forgiveness. In Russian, which is important, for not coming back for her. Alexei and Melina also have made it down safely with Melina just a tad banged up. With Ross's forces now bearing down on Natasha's position, Alexei and the others insist on fighting alongside her, but she declines, asking them to leave while she holds off Ross. Yelena gives her her green utility vest. Natasha gives her a vial of the antidote for Melina to replicate and for Yelena to use to free the rest of the widows. As if on cue, the surviving widows from the Red Room arrive in a jet, telling Yelena they would never leave her behind. One of them goes to tend to Antonia. Melina encourages her to bring her along with them. Alexi, Melina, Yelena, and the Widows take off in the jet, leaving Natasha behind to confront Ross. So what exactly does Natasha do? Does she flee? Does she fight Ross and his guys? Does she turn herself in? I mean, the latter seems unlikely, unless she escapes later on to join Steve, Sam, and Wanda, but she doesn't look like she's going anywhere as those SUVs are moving in. Flash forward two weeks. Natasha, decked out in blonde hair and Yelena's vest, as we see her in Infinity War, meets up with Rick Mason in a field somewhere. He's managed to procure her not just any old jet, but what appears to be an Avengers Quinjet. She makes references to having to bust some of her friends out of prison before taking off in the Quinjet. I guess to answer your question, she must not spend too much time with Ross because she gets away to rescue Steve's crew two weeks later. Exactly. I can't imagine they came to some sort of agreement in that short amount of time. Looking back now, I think that's a really big plot hole in this movie, and I, I really wish that would have been addressed. In a post credit sequence, we see Yelena visiting a gravestone for Natasha. She is joined by the Contessa Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, who informs her that her next target is the person responsible for Natasha's death. She then hands Yelena a photograph of Clint Barton. <laughs> and then Emily is going incoherent, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how else the, I can convey the, that emotion. The anticipation is killing her. The anticipation slash concern slash everything is just falling up inside of Emily. And November 28th cannot come soon enough for her. This is the part of the show where we talk about characters and actors. Starting with, and again, it's good to be starting with her, Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff, a.k.a. Black Widow. The Black Widow. First off... Again, I'm so happy Scarlett finally has a solo movie under her belt. You and I have been talking for over a year now about how much we love her in this role and how important she is to the MCU for a whole host of reasons. She finally has an opportunity to shine on her own. And here I guess I'm going to get in trouble again because I'm going to say kind of. Clearly she has a lot to do in this film. And as I said earlier in the show, one of the things I really like about this film is how much we see Natasha on her own, especially early on. She's got more fights and drives the action of the film more than at any other point in the MCU. As we've said already, it's a moment for Natasha and for Scarlett Johansson that is way, way overdue. Having said that, this film has a fantastic supporting cast, and there are several times when she, I think, kind of loses the scene to another character, usually Yelena or Alexei. So as the movie goes on, it frequently feels less like a movie about the Black Widow, Natasha Romanoff, and more like a movie about the entire family of Black Widows, including Yelena, Melina, and their, <laughs> their token male ally, Red Guardian. My favorite Natasha is still the one that we see in Winter soldier but of all her appearances in the mcu this movie is the closest to that performance for me she's serious and focused but also funny when she wants to or needs to be you know especially if you're going up against someone like yelena i love that argument that yelena and natasha have in the car when they're trying to get out of budapest and yelena's like well what was the plan and natasha's like well i was trying to drive us away <laughs> yeah. and it's so it kind of feels like that scene in iron man 2 with whiplash on the speed track and peppers in the back of the car screen and Happy and Tony are fighting and Happy's like, I was trying to hit the guy and Tony's like, really? Because it feels like you were trying to hit me. And it's <laughs> like, when you're that steamed up and the adrenaline is pumping, you latch onto these weird things. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm tr I had a plan and you ruined it kind of thing. 
And it's so dramatic and childish while all of these sort of James Bond-esque explosions and chaos is going on all around them. I like to imagine that even though Natasha is, you know what, in her 30s, she never actually got to live out a normal life. So really, she's more like a teenager still. And I think you get some of that in this movie. And I really like that sort of real-world characterization that she's not this 100% mission-honed robot. Florence Pugh as Yelena Belova. I mean, if you listen to our last episode, you know how I feel about Yelena. I love her. Florence Pugh does a perfect younger sister to Scarlett Johansson's older sister, and she also stands alone as a really great character in her own right. It's fun to see Yelena as Natasha probably was when she first broke her Red Room programming. Yeah, like we mentioned with the cool vest and making jabs at Natasha, things that she wasn't allowed to do before. But you also see her heartbreak at the fact that she caused the death of one of her sister Black Widows, that the one good thing she remembers from her childhood technically wasn't true. And then, of course, that she lost her sister at the end. The one person who really mattered to her that whole time. She's great. Amazing. A plus. I have no problems. <laughs> what Emily just said. I mean, you hit everything right on the head. This character just made her debut in the MCU about three months ago. She's been in only one movie so far, and yet here Emily and I, completely independent of each other, each selected her as one of our top five. There's a lot of people in the MCU, but she made each of our top five five MCU characters list, not a month after that movie came out. And I think that speaks to the power of the character and to Florence Pugh's incredible performance and how much those spoke to both of us, as well as to audiences around the world who, you know, if you read online and everything, have been expressing their admiration for Yelena since this film opened. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what Marvel does with her in the future. And, you know, we don't have a whole lot longer to wait for an answer to that question, as she will be appearing in the Hawkeye series about a month after this episode drops. David Harbour as Alexei Shostakov slash Red Guardian. I actually do have mixed feelings about Alexei. First off, this is the first time I've ever seen any of David Harbour's work to my knowledge. I've never seen Stranger Things. Uh, I didn't see that allegedly horrible Hellboy reboot a couple of years back. I've seen this movie like three times now. And I gotta say, after that opening sequence in Ohio, Alexei is kind of useless. <laughs> I mean, Natasha and Yelena need him to tell him how to get to Melina and thus to get to the Red Room, and he does pitch in a bit on the Red Room fighting Taskmaster. But other than that, does he really actually do anything? He spends most of his time pining away for the good old days as the Red Guardian, half-heartedly trying to play the dad figure to Natasha and Yelena, much to their aggravation. And, you know, can you blame them? I mean, he is so self-centered. Natasha is so right when she tells him after they get off the helicopter after it crashes, we haven't seen each other in 20 years, and the first thing you ask me is about you? At the beginning of the movie, when they land in Cuba here his wife is severely injured and yet at the earliest possible moment he just like abandons Melina, Yelena and Natasha to go celebrate the end of his Ohio exile with his buddy Drakov. He's completely out of shape as a superhero and he gets his ass kicked most of the time, super soldier or not and yet despite all of that I kind of love him. <laughs> David Harbour is funny as hell in this role and next to Yelena I think Alexi is the movie's number one scene stealer I don't know there's, there's something endearing to me about <laughs> how clueless and dopey he is. My favorite scene in the movie, it just shows how totally tone deaf he is and how he just, in the middle of Natasha trying to do her, you know, okay, this is what's going to happen. You know, trying to have the serious discussion. It's like you said, herding cats. He wanders off into the parenting tropes again. And he goes, I've been quoting this around the house a lot. I think I've driven my wife and kid crazy. I want my girls to follow their dreams. Reach for the stars. <laughs> Every time he says that, I just crack up. I think it's so funny. They're trying to have a serious discussion about how to, like, you know, save the world and save all these people. And he's talking about his parenting philosophy. I do actually find that kind of funny. And it's like every time he opens his mouth, you can just see Natasha and Yelena rolling their eyes like, oh, my God. <laughs> I guess part of me sympathizes with him just a tad. I have some idea what it's like to feel like you're intended to have a particular career or that it's your destiny to do one thing and then you're kind of forced to do something else for a very long time. Everyone has been annoyed with or embarrassed by their parents. I think Alexi's just turned that up to 11. I don't particularly like Alexi because he kind of drives me crazy, but I think, of course, that's probably the point. He reminds me a bit of the dad, Frank, from Shameless, where absolutely no one can stand him, but they also can't get rid of him, partially because the guy who plays Frank is a very well-known as famous actor, but also because, you know, he's the patriarch of the family. He's the son, I mean, 
Alexei isn't really the son because the movie's about Natasha. But the idea, he thinks he is the son, the center of this family, and therefore no one can exist without him. So that's kind of the vibe that I get. He reminds me a lot of that character from Shameless. He's that type of person that you need around because sometimes he's useful, but the rest of the time you're like, man, why is this guy still here? Rachel Weiss as Melina Vostokov. We talked, I said a bit, but I mean a lot, about the complicated relationships that exist between daughters and mothers in the top five episode, especially oldest daughters like Natasha, and I think that's really well captured in this movie. Melina knows that she's hurt Natasha and Yelena, and she knows it's probably because she was hurt too, you know, like the hurt people hurt people thing, but she also acknowledges that she can only do so much to rectify that. I also think that even though Melina is more reserved and not as aggressively self-centered as Alexi is, she probably also is more worried about herself than the girls. Granted, they both come around and take down the red room, but again, it's probably more for herself than it is for some sort of altruistic reason. I, I agree. She's kind of focused on the mission and focused on her job. Yeah, she's much more subdued about it than Alexi because Alexi just, you know, hated doing this and just wanted to go back to being a superhero. But um, like I said, I can't speak to the, the mother-daughter dynamic. I, I've always liked Rachel Weiss. I've seen her in stuff for, you know, the last 20 some years and I think I've seen her play spies before. I've seen her play Russians before. Kind of ironic given who she's married to that all this would sort of coalesce together in the sort of espionage thing. Yeah, yeah, I guess I just don't have a whole lot more to say about her. In a way she kind of fills the place of the veteran actress I think. You could also probably say the same thing of Ray Winstone but he's not in the movie quite as much. Speaking of Ray Winstone, we are up to Ray Winstone as Drakov. The best villains or adversaries in the MCU, they tend to be the best because the audience has some measure of sympathy or empathy for them. You think of Eric Killmonger or Adrian Toomes, aka the Vulture, or even Loki. They're bad guys, but it's like you can kind of see where they're coming from. By contrast, I think Drakov is a great villain for the exact opposite reasons. He's just so contemptible and so vile. He's a sadist, a misogynist, a weakling, and a coward. And I wanted him to get his due so badly because he's just so thoroughly disgusting. Sometimes you need the bad guy to just be bad. And Ray Winstone does that very well, I think. If I hate a character viscerally that much, it usually means that the actor is doing their job. And what's particularly impressive is that you, you don't really get to know him until well into the film. In the grand scheme of things, Winstone doesn't have a whole lot to do, but he really makes the best of it, I think. I want to be surprised at how gross Drake is, but in the real world, we've seen what weak and pathetic men do with just a little bit of power. And then, of course, you see weak and pathetic men with a lot of power. And funny enough, they're all still the same level of disgusting. Again, though, in this movie, we get another sort of rare instance in the MCU where the villain doesn't have anyone pulling his strings. A lot of the villains we've talked about, there's a benefactor involved. But with this one, it's just his mad scramble for power and control, and he's just so desperate for that power. And when you're that obsessed with yourself and the power that you want, and subjugating the perceived weakest people, young girls and women, gets you even more power and control, you're kind of going to do it no matter what you have to do. Back in the day, the modus operandi of Marvel Comics was to be, you know, the world outside your window. There we go. There it is, bright as day. Powerful men doing horrible things because they can. Otifag Benle as Rick Mason. I really like Rick Mason. I like the fact that even though Natasha moves through all these different worlds, S.H.I.E.L.D., Red Room, heck, even working for Tony in the second Iron Man movie, there's someone who's known her through all of these changes. I also really love a good, true, neutral character. Mason definitely doesn't have any morals. He's just doing what he does and, you know, who cares what happens in the end? I said before, I, I would love to learn more about Rick Mason. There's an archetype there that I don't think you really see much of in the MCU. You know, you've got your, like, Ned in the Spider-Man movies, you know, the guy in the chair, the genius inventor, and there are lots of different archetypes. But Mason is just kind of your supply guy. <laughs> it's like, oh, you need this? I got it. It's like quartermaster on a ship in the Navy, or arguably the most important person on a naval vessel is the quartermaster. And it's something that people don't think about as much. It, they take it for granted. It's not like this stuff just magically appears. Someone's got to get it. I, I suppose, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I should not be surprised that Natasha knows someone, that Natasha has a guy who can do this for her. The Black Widow has a supply chain, <laughs> and Rick Mason is it. He adds some color and some dimension to her character and her life that we'd never seen before, maybe never even considered until now. And I just thought it was a really nice touch, and I hope we get to see more of him at some point later in the MCU. 
Olga Kirilenko as Antonia Drakov slash Taskmaster. I didn't really have much to say about her because you don't really see much of her. It is kind of interesting how many James Bond connections there are in this movie. I mean, it's a spy thriller that kind of plays out like a James Bond movie. We've got Daniel Craig's wife playing a major role. Uh, we're talking about this movie, you know, just a few weeks before the release of Daniel Craig's Swan Song in the Bond franchise. And they even got a Bond girl to play one of the quote-unquote bad guys, but she doesn't really do much. I didn't have anything to say about her. I think because it was too painful to think about. Like a lot of this movie is sort of the relatable struggles that you have with a family. But then there's that layer of Natasha has probably ruined a lot of lives. And now she has to come face to face with the worst one. Loki even brings it up in the first Avengers movie. There's something about Dracov's daughter. And we don't know what it is at the time. But the fact that it wasn't just, oh, you killed a little kid kid it's that you tried to kill a little kid and then you severely scarred her physically and emotionally and then she proceeded to live another couple of decades being tortured essentially by her own family by her dad while still having to live with the literal and figurative scars inflicted on her by natasha and so i think just thinking about that i like didn't want to write anything because i was like no it's terrible it's too terrible i don't want to think about it it's funny i am thinking more about her now that we're talking at the very end of the movie i almost you know we talked about how you know death would be almost like a sweet release i almost wanted her to be dead at the end of that fight at the movie i almost wanted antonia to be dead because it's like she's been through so much crap this would actually be the most merciful thing for her william hurt as secretary thaddeus ross Mm, yeah okay i mean he's fine i'm still glad he chilled out after incredible hulk but even with that it's you know okay you're here that's fine you're fine it's fine Miscellaneous stuff. Um, you know, I, I like to talk about film scores and so forth. The the score for Black Widow was composed by Lauren Balfi. I like the score a lot. It's very different from anything else that we've heard in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think a lot of the Russian influence, the choral aspect of it and so forth, uh, it just kind of has that very, appropriately enough, epic Russian flavor to it that adds a dimension that you know, we just haven't heard before in the MCU. I also liked the addition of the pop culture songs. The Smells Like Teen Spirit cover. I think Sia is playing in her car when she's driving into town when she's in Norway. Someone has told me that. Yes, I think that's true. I like the idea that she's in a remote area of like a Nordic country and Sia's on the radio. And you'd think like, oh, are you going to change it? And she's probably like, nah, I like it. She's probably thinking like, one day I could be like Lillian in accounting with the lip piercing or whatever that girl that she's trying to (laughs) Steve up with at the beginning of Winter Soldier. (laughs) You know, she like, she watched pop culture things when she was training for the Red Room. She knows. Mm -hmm. She probably, you know, knows what she likes. And I think that just about does it. That is it we made it that is our review of black widow thank you all for joining us sorry it's taken us so long to get back to you but uh, we hope it was well worth the wait we are hoping to be at least for the time being back on a somewhat more regular schedule and uh we're hoping to be joined in a few weeks by our good friend cherokee lopez who will be helping us review black panther so we have that to look forward to we thank you all for listening take care of yourselves be safe and we'll see you around have a good night